You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Charles Dickens opened his classic 19th century novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with a famous line, It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. The novel was set in the context of the French Revolution and it was certainly a time of chaos and confusion and danger. In the context of the year 2020, may I mangle his famous line to say it was the worst of times, it was the worserest of times. (laughs) It's been a tough year. There's no denying it. It's been a tough year, a confusing year, a strange year. If you think back 12 months, I recall many of us saying then, I can't wait for 2019 to be over. 2019 has been the hardest year I've had to endure. Surely 2020 will be better. 2019 was pretty bad, as I recall. But uh, what has 2020 brought us? You'll remember at the end of 2019 that we'd been in drought for, I think it was something like 10 years here in Australia. Then the year closed off with devastating bushfires that took so many lives and destroyed so much property. And that was followed by major flooding in many parts around the country. We'd barely begun to put ourselves and our country back together when COVID hit. And the rest, as they say, is history. What appeared to be at first something that just required us to take a bit greater caution and uh, a bit better hygiene and a brief lockdown ended up with virtually the whole nation being confined to home for about eight months. Now, we're in a far better situation here in Australia than most of the rest of the world. We are, to all intents and purposes, COVID-free, notwithstanding an outbreak in Sydney just recently. And it hasn't been easy getting here, as you all have experienced. Many doubted that we would ever get to this point where our country was essentially COVID-free and open for the most part. Many argued that the price to pay to reach this point was just too high. Still, here we are. As tough as the year has been, we're the envy of most of the rest of the world, I think. And as this year draws to the close, draws to a close, I'd like us to reflect on some of the lessons we've learned and some of the experiences we've had to go through. I doubt anyone here would remember how I opened 2020 with a preaching series at the beginning of the year. I had an almost overwhelming sense at the time that 2020 was going to be a particularly difficult year, although I thought it was just specifically for Christians. I didn't have the slightest inkling at that time what was in store for us, of course. I'm not a prophet, like some people claim to be, but if pressed, I would probably have said that I expected Christianity would come under greater attack with mounting pressure on our freedoms to live out our faith and that we would be increasingly marginalised in society. You don't need to be a prophet to predict those sorts of things. That's been coming for years. But I felt a particular urgency at the start of the year to help you to strengthen your faith and put some steel in your spine for the year to come and get you founded on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. So we started the year with a six-part series through the book of Ephesians. 
The purpose of that series was that you would that it would help us to grasp a number of things that would give us the strength and the confidence to weather any storm that 2020 might throw at us. And the things that I wanted us to get a hold of were in no particular order, the greatness and the power of God over everything, the loving kindness and mercy of God towards his people, the wonder of his grace towards us in choosing to rescue us and to reconcile us to himself, rebels and enemies who are dead in their trespasses and sins. I want us to grasp the security of our position in Christ as adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. I want us to sense the rest and the peace that comes from knowing that he's not only chosen us to be recipients of his mercy, but he already has good works prepared for us to walk in. And there's the purposes of God in bringing us together as one family, a smaller family here in City Edge Church that's part of a larger family, the church university. And I wanted us to get a sense of our authority in Christ, that the position, our position in unity with Christ grants to us in our struggle against sin and in our battle with an enemy that's invisible. All those things Ephesians deals with and much more. I hope and pray that I was effective at least to some degree in building you up to survive and even to thrive in this past year. Actually, I should correct that statement. I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit took the words that I was privileged to share with you, to build you up, to strengthen you, and to make you resilient for this past year and for many years to come. And all of it had to be founded not on my experience and flowery words, but on God's word. Because it's only the word of God fed into our souls that builds muscle in us. It works slowly. It works secretly. But a steady diet of God's word is guaranteed to build you up. Something else I remember saying early in the COVID lockdown was that I, would, I believe we would see the church and not only City Edge, but churches generally both shrink and grow. It would shrink as some people realised that they're not really interested in church after all. They may have just been going along because their family does or they've always done it, but they don't really have a heart for it. So a forced exclusion from church would make them realise that uh, what they've been missing out on, sleeping in on a Sunday morning, long, lazy breakfasts, time to themselves, a round of golf, no requirement that they would have to put on a mask of godliness and front up at church. These people would drop away and not return to church when church started up again. I would imagine that every church has experienced some of that. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. Now, John wasn't talking about Christians that leave a church and go to another church. He was talking about people that had the mask of Christianity and for whatever reason decided they didn't want to do it anymore and left. And we've had people leave City Edge Church this year and in previous years. 
but almost without exception, they've gone on to another church. That makes me proud, if I could say that, that we've been able to build something into them in the years at City Edge that they don't abandon church when they leave, but they leave with the intention of finding somewhere else where they can grow and nourish and be a part of. Others would remain staying faithful, staying committed, engaging in the many church events, even when they're forced to attend those events by Zoom. We've had pretty good roll-ups at our Zoom corporate prayer meetings, probably better on average than we do when we do it face-to-face. And our Connect Group Zoom gatherings have been pretty well attended. Now, there's something missing. We all know there's something missing when you do it by Zoom rather than face-to-face. But it's been pretty good on the whole, I reckon. There's some, there's a core in every church who by their dedication and faithfulness reveal both their love for Jesus Christ and their heart for their local church. I bet if you were able to measure it, somehow you'd find that each one of these people has actually grown stronger and deeper in their faith during this crisis. That's what I mean when I say that churches would both shrink and grow. We would lose some, maybe forever, but others would join and grow and become stronger. On top of that, some churches would grow because the Lord would call newcomers to faith and they would find a local church to join. That's remotely at first. There's plenty of people that have been checking out churches online over the last several months, not just here in Melbourne, but around the world. And uh, they might lurk in the background for a while, but when church starts up, they're there in person. Many churches are beginning to see those things happening. We should praise God for the shrinking and the growing. For in the first instance, he's sorting out the sheep from the goats, to use biblical language, as he promised he would. And in the second instance, he's continuing to build his church as he also promised he would. So what are some of the observations and lessons from this past year? While I'm reflecting here, I'd like you to think about what this past year has brought to you. Specifically, what, if anything, you have to give thanks for? Has there been anything positive to come out of this year? At the end of this message, I'd like to invite some of you to come forward to give thanks for those things. There's no doubt that this has been the hardest year ever for many people. Of course, whether it's the hardest you've ever experienced might be somewhat age-related. If you're older, you're more likely to have gone through something much more difficult in years gone by. Being restricted to home and near environments for the protection of your health is much preferable, for example, than having lived through the Vietnam War. So we need to keep some perspective about what we've gone through. If you're young, you may well experience something much worse than COVID lockdowns of 2020 in years to come. So firstly, we can thank God for the way he has protected us from COVID. We're all still alive. We're all still here. And I'm assuming since you're here this morning or listening in, on uh, Zoom, that you're still following Jesus. That's something to celebrate. That's something to give thanks for. 
Sadly, some of us have lost members of our extended families due to COVID or other tragedies during the year. That's heartbreaking. And our hearts and our prayers go out to those families that have been shattered by unexpected deaths. But we've also seen large numbers of people join together in prayer for those people that have been affected and to contribute financially to them. We've seen a generosity from people and not just Christians and not just people here at City Edge, but a generosity that's actually surprised me to some extent. I've heard reports back from people overseas wondering why this little church in Melbourne, Australia, would care enough about a stranger in another country that we would pray for them and that we would help them financially. Friends, that's good news. That's something to celebrate and something we probably wouldn't have done without a COVID lockdown. It's making the name of Jesus Christ known far beyond our walls and far beyond our city. Early in the lockdown, some of us did letterbox drops in the local areas. We printed off flyers that offered support and encouragement and opportunities to uh, call on one of us to go and do the, the grocery shopping for them if they're not able to, or be there as a listening ear if they are struggling. The flyer made clear that we were Christians, but made no mention of any church. That was deliberate. The purpose of it was not to promote City Edge Church, but to promote Jesus Christ. Mel had several phone calls from people thanking her and encouraging her. No one ever actually rang up wanting help. But she had quite a number of phone calls saying, I love what you're doing. Thank you for that. God bless you. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. That's a positive advertisement for the Christian faith and the heart of the good news and Jesus Christ. Many people have reported that the COVID crisis has provided opportunities for serious conversations with non-Christians, not necessarily about life and eternity in God, but conversations that build relationships and will open doors in the future that may one day bear fruit of salvations. That's a number of positives that have come out of 2020, but there's been plenty of negatives too. Not everything that has caused us grief and anxiety and anxiety in 2020 has been directly related to COVID, but COVID has certainly exacerbated our problems and our issues. The uncertainty of it all has been draining for everyone. When the lockdown started, I think we all expected we'd have to stay at home for two or three weeks until the government got things under control. When that stretched stretched out to two months, three months, four months, people were reaching the limit of their patience. The easing of restrictions around July gave us all a glimmer of hope. But then the second wave hit and we were plunged into a tougher lockdown than before, with no visible prospect of release or relief. How did you handle that period? I know cracks began to appear in many relationships. People who would normally get on like a house on fire found themselves impatient and frustrated by their friend's apparent disregard for the situation. Whichever side you found yourself on, I'm sure you were frustrated with others 
that had a different viewpoint. And sadly, some of this spilled over into personal criticisms and attacks. As Christians, we should all feel convicted and ashamed by that. Jesus blasted the Pharisees in Matthew 12 when he told them, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. It's a sad indictment that Christians have been just as guilty of this as non-Christians. By way of contrast, Paul wrote in Colossians 3, but now you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth and instead let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Frankly, we Christians haven't done a very good job of this in 2020. Lord, forgive us. I know many pastors and church leaders have struggled with how to handle the church lockdown. We all value gathering together as saints to worship the Lord and to take in his word. And initially, it wasn't a very difficult decision for most churches to obey government directives to close down. But how long should you remain closed for? What's an acceptable length of time to suspend a God-ordained directive to meet together for the sake of the health of the wider community? How long before we decide enough is enough? And we must now disobey the government and begin to meet again. Is it four weeks? Is it four months? Is it four years? How do you decide at which point the competing priorities of health and care for your community must override the requirement to not neglecting the meeting of the saints or vice versa. And if you're going to make the decision to meet together in contradiction to the government's requirements, if you make that decision this week, what's changed from last week? If it was acceptable theologically to stay closed last week, why is it not acceptable this week? They're difficult issues to think through and to decide with any certainty. And let me tell you, I still can't answer that question with confidence. I know I'm not alone. When is the right time to disobey? What I do know is that the Lord sometimes uses strange and unusual circumstances to achieve his good purposes. Sometimes he brings tragedy on people as a punishment for their sin. And sometimes he does it for other reasons. Many of the prophetic words in the Old Testament are warnings about impending punishment for sin. The book of Lamentations is a horrific record of suffering inflicted on God's people in punishment for their sin. Jerusalem had been surrounded by the Babylonian army who were intent on starving them into submission. And tragically, they were successful. But the toll on human life and human dignity was extreme. It's difficult for us to imagine the horrors that starvation led them to commit, horrors that included mothers cooking and eating their own children. It's one of the most awful events recorded in human history. 
and yet they were driven to this misery and degradation at the Lord's hand and at his, his direction. How do we reconcile that? We can only come to terms with it if we have settled in our hearts that whatever the Lord does, whether it seems good to us or not, is for a good purpose. It's to achieve his greater good, even though it's usually in ways that we can't see. Other times, as I mentioned, though, the Lord brings suffering and tragedy not directly because of sin, but rather to shake us out of our comfort and our complacency. In Acts 8, after Stephen is stoned to death, the first Christian martyr tells us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all except the apostles. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what, he, what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who, who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Sometimes wonder whether the Lord has been doing something like that in 2020, not scattering us, but shaking us, shaking us out of our complacency and our dependence on the stuff of this world and forcing us to think in new ways about how we spread the gospel. Is that what he's been doing? Only time will tell. But that brings me to something else good that I've observed these past several months. The church lockdown has forced all of us to reassess how we maintain community and how we encourage others and how we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Many churches, of course, have done live streams of their services and some report people joining the church and even salvations that have come as a result of that. We're not equipped as a church to do live streams, but we've been posting regularly on our Facebook page Every day, Monday to Saturday, there's another passage of scripture posted up. While I haven't tallied up the numbers, we've averaged, I think, about 50 reads of each one of those over the past several months. 50 reads of scripture every day. That means we're reaching more than double the number of people that call City Edge home. And we're reaching them with a pure, unvarnished, and unadulterated word of God. And every passage we've posted has been encouraging or challenging or sometimes both. And on Sundays, we've posted video of the church service and had plenty of positive feedback about that as well. We're reaching people in ways that would not be possible without modern technology. And frankly, we probably wouldn't have explored this option if it wasn't for the COVID lockdown. Now, others as we know, do it far better than us, of course. But still, it's, about, it's expanded our reach and it's built up the saints. You know, nothing will stand in the way of Christ building his church. Not drought, not bushfires, not flood, not persecution, and certainly not COVID. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He means what he says. 
and he intends to continue to grow the church in every circumstance and often by every circumstance, whether we think it's a good circumstance or not. Given that truth, we don't need to be rattled when the world around us seems to be falling apart. Christ knows exactly what he's doing. Now, I listened to a podcast recently in which one of the speakers talked about conversations he's had with other pastors over recent months. And he's been hearing from most of them that they're experiencing record levels of discouragement. Some of it comes from seeing church members fall away at a time when those people really need to be pressing in harder. Their experience has been that the most needy people spiritually have been the quickest ones to drop off. And no amount of encouragement can seem to draw them back. And they're also discouraged by how fragile unity has been within the church. Some of it I mentioned earlier, it's not only society that has been polarised by the events of 2020. Sadly, churches are finding that to be true also. It's been far too easy to give offence, to take offence and to misunderstand each other. And even at the level of church eldership, there can be disunity. Eldership teams, he reports, that were united at the beginning of the year began to show signs of strain and fracture towards the end. It's been a draining year for everyone. Unity is fragile. If we don't actively work for it, we will splinter off in every direction. Unity is not maintained without effort. It's maintained with forgiveness and with grace. Paul urges in Ephesians 4 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But it's not bad, all bad news. I look at the good folks of City Edge Church and I see a group of people who have remained committed to each other, praying for each other, encouraging one another. I see people who have used their time in lockdown wisely and effectively. They've spent time in the word and in prayer, time that would have been very limited if it wasn't for the lockdown. And as a result, I've seen growth in many people a deeper faith, a better prayer life, a growing love for Jesus Christ. I've seen people caring for others, supporting others, being generous and gracious towards others. For some people, the lockdown has accelerated their spiritual growth, not hindered it. There have been many reasons to be discouraged this year, but overwhelmingly, I feel positive about it. I've learned that God continues to be faithful towards us. I know that because we haven't turned our backs on the Lord during this time. He has sustained us, not in our strength, but by his Holy Spirit. We're sustained and we're kept close to him. We've stayed strong in the faith. And I've learned that the Lord is still sufficient for us. I've learned that in spite of occasional times of friction, of friction and misunderstanding, that underneath it all, there's a genuine love that we have for each other and a determination to stick together 
There's a unity that sometimes seems strained, but has held together through everything. And it's held together because our hearts have been knit together in Christ through genuine salvation and through genuine faith. That's why you're all here today, this morning, and not out on the golf course or eating breakfast in a local cafe. These are precious things to celebrate. I've learned how important and necessary and joyful it is to be together on a Sunday morning. It was too easy for several months to forget that as the lockdown dragged on. I suspect we all may have got a bit used to sleeping in late on a Sunday morning and joining the Zoom meeting in our pyjamas and eating breakfast still. But how good is it to be here together, to enjoy the company of our brothers and sisters, to sing together, to pray together, to hear the scriptures proclaimed together. Let's resolve to never forget how good that is. I'd like to invite some of you to come up and share. If you've uh, got something you'd like to give thanks for, or something that the Lord has done in you or through you this past year, I'd like to invite you to come up and just share for a few moments. I can see some want to come up. Anyone? <laughs> All right. Um, I suppose firstly, this is he's better. It's so much easier to talk to you all than over Zoom. Um, so <laughs> that's probably one good thing that we're all back together and stuff like that. So um, 2020 was a pretty challenging year for obviously everyone and us as well. But it's also probably <laughs> one of the best years for us as well. As all you all know that Sarah's pregnant. So... Um, <laughs> That's what's awesome, but not many people know the the battle it took to get there. Do you want me to do it? Mm-hmm. You sure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So we've actually been trying for, what, three years, mm-hmm. I think. So got to a stage where it got pretty hard and we were pretty hopeless. So we had to go through IVF, um, but we got knocked back and knocked back because of COVID so many times and things like that but then we we actually got a break, breakthrough we were going for a cheaper company and god opened a door for us to go through um a private company what was unreal <laughs> so we um tossed and turned for a long time whether to do it or not and prayed about it <laughs> yeah yeah so there's there's pros and cons to it but we ended up rolling the dice and giving it a go and um even through that journey we we got um, I suppose appointments moved and one stage there was meant to go in for um, one of the operations and a coronavirus test and come back. It was promised to the nurse probably the day before and it still wasn't there. So he, he probably had a four-hour morning of just praying, trying to get in. And she got in with five minutes left, what was what was unreal. So it's got there as well. And then, um, yeah, so basically it all went well and we – got the best outcome they've ever seen in a first try and it all worked first time. So God's hand was all over it. What's what's amazing. So yeah, praise to God. So it's been a challenging year, but um, it's probably one of them 
one of our best years in Cape and <laughs> closer to God, really. Yeah. You want to add anything? No. You're going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. So Sarah is almost 16, 16 on Wednesday, so she's getting pretty close um, to halfway. Well, it'd be good. <laughs> so <laughs> I just had to do the bass in my head for a second there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so she's... She's through the first semester, the, the challenging time and trimester. When I said semester, <laughs> back to the school terms. So, yeah, pray, praise to God through that. And, yeah, it's, it's been great. Cool, cool. Thanks, guys. Who else was jumping up just then? <laughs> Feel free to queue up here, folks. Um, one thing that uh, I've had in my mind for a long time with Jenna is uh, is the idea of family worship. It's um, at least once a week, reading the Bible, praying, singing worship songs to God. And I suppose as a leader in our house, I haven't really put a whole lot of effort into doing that. Um, I've wanted to for a long time. It's just felt really hard to, I guess, pluck up the courage and lead my family in that. Now, with coronavirus, it was the perfect opportunity Uh you know, we're, we're meeting on, on Zoom at 10.30, so at 10 o'clock we'll have half an hour of reading the Bible, praying, worshipping God before we join uh, join the Zoom meeting. And it's been extremely valuable, um, something that both of us, you know, since we've been meeting together, we've actually, we've missed, we haven't been doing it since then. We're trying to find a time in our in our schedules when we can set aside half an hour to continue to worship God as a family. Um but that's one big blessing. And I think probably Jenna feels like we did it here a couple of times. We stayed over the night and I think mum and dad joined us a couple of times. And I got the impression even you guys felt blessed uh, by that as well. Um, but yeah, I think coronavirus in that sense has been extremely good for our family because it's brought us closer to the Lord, closer to each other. Um, something that I want to continue as well. Who else would like to share? Uh, mm, for us, um, I'm gonna say about me first. Uh, it's been it's been a tough year, um, no financially because we we haven't been affected that much, um, but since we arrived to this country without one you know one dollar in our pocket i mean we, we have some money but not as much as to live since so it, it, it doesn't it doesn't affect us as as a big worry uh, money is no not something that COVID has affected us even though we have lost uh, jobs and clients and i mean i'm talking about my company um but um, i think uh, there is something about uh, God uh, providing to us always uh, since we we arrived to Australia. So um, that wasn't that wasn't a, a problem with COVID. But uh, um, I lost a cousin of mine um, from COVID. She she's dead. Um, so that's 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 the the worst thing that had happened. And and we still have our family in Colombia. So that's. That worry is always there, still there, and it's not going to be away 
for at least one more year. So we are worried about that. That's the thing about this virus. And but thanks God, our faith having having changed is is still there. It's stronger as ever. Uh, we have the the support of uh, Ian and Mel and CTH here. That is our family here in Australia. Um, so we always ask for prayer for our family in Colombia, our friends, and and we have the opportunity to meet every week. We we never skip one Zoom meetings. Uh, thanks God, and so that's a lot of support for us. Um, what else? Um, yes, yeah, so as Edgar said, oh, I'm gonna correct something. Our faith did change, so it got stronger. Hmm. Uh, and so COVID gave us the opportunity to uh, only pushing our, you know, creativity to um, problem solving skills. But okay, we talk about faith as Christians. So do we really have faith? So this year was the opportunity for us to really show God. Yeah, we believe in you. We have to have faith. And even though the war is, you know, um crumbling before our eyes and uh, our family, loved ones, uh, friends are suffering and situation is overwhelming. Do we believe in you, God? And we did. We pray. It's not easy all the time. And it feels, um, yeah, as I said, overwhelming. And we get anxious. And But once we are in contact with him and we pray and we have the support of uh you know, fellowship and, and the church, then we get back, you know. Yes, we fall down, but then we are back in the fight and we are stronger and we are not alone. So COVID reinforced that view of Christianity, of we are not only Christians and, uh, and uh, you know, in the, good times. in the good times, but in the bad times is when we really, when we really find uh, find the comfort of God and His response and His loyalty and love with us, so that's definitely the positive. He has shown us that miracles exist, and uh, the family, uh, spiritual family, is uh, sometimes better than blood family. And we are there and we are together, and I'm grateful for. We are grateful for that. Yes. Anyone else like to share? Um, I had a very different sort of year. Um, I escaped Melbourne about three days before the two days before the border closed to Queensland. Um, I had to go up there anyway. I was expecting to go there for two weeks. I ended up there for eight months. So um, I did feel very isolated. And um, I've got a few friends there, but um, not like in Melbourne. And family's not there too. But um, the Zoom church was really good because I could feel that I was sort of still part of something. And I could see people, um, not that I stayed chatting afterwards too much, but just the interaction with people and being able to praise God. Being so isolated in a place like Queensland is not that hard, I suppose. Um, every morning I'd be getting up about 5, 36 o'clock and I'd go down to the beach and I'd go for a body surf and then I'd go for a run for a kilometre and back. So 
in that time you just feel the beauty and the the the, the just enormous well wealth of beauty from God like even from being in the waves and just feeling the splashing and the and the turmoil of the waves and the fresh air in the water sort of invigorating your body and then running along the beach and seeing the millions and millions of crystals of sand that you're running on and just the mountain behind you and the sun rising and just just this is just so awesome like I'm just totally blessed to be in a place like this and that gave me vigor to be able to encounter problems that came along and also um, talk with people that were not sort of uh, so unaffected by isolation like what I had. So you could just sort of talk with people and help them through things. Um, particularly, I have a lot of friends in Philippines who are going through even now a lot because COVID's still there. They're still wearing masks and they still have night curfew. But, um, you know, just helping them financially sort of through their studies and through having enough to eat, stuff like that, or if they had a medical condition, being able to afford to go to the doctor and, and see what was happening. So it was a different year for me, but there was a lot of growth, um, and I'm just abundantly thankful for that. So, yeah. Anyone else like to share? That's it. I'd just like to confirm what... Uh, all these people have shared with us. I've actually seen that. That's what I'm referring to when I say that I've seen people grow and grow deeper in their faith. Exactly what you folks have just shared with us that God has done in you, through you, with you this year are the things I've actually seen happen. And it gives me hope. It makes me positive. I know from my own experience in the past, it's the toughest times that have actually grown me the most. Weightlifters don't build up muscle by sitting in an armchair in the corner watching TV. They've got to get out there and work those weights and build up their muscles. And the same thing happens spiritually. If we don't have that sort of resistance, something to push against, we don't build up our spiritual muscles. So God has been pleased to give us COVID, at least in part, to build us up spiritually. And I thank him that, uh, that we've seen that happen and it's put some fibre in souls that will survive decades, lifetime into the future, into, into eternity, in fact. One day, I believe many of us will look back at 2020 with fondness, believe it or not. Probably not yet, but one day we will. I've remarked a few times recently that I already missed the good old days of COVID traffic. But, uh, I believe one day we'll look back and see how the Lord has sustained us. And we've heard some testimonies of that this morning already and how he grew us, how he drew us deeper into himself during this time. The things that aren't always obvious at the time, and we need the benefit of 2020 hindsight, so to speak, to see it. And we can look forward to the future as well, no matter what 2021 may bring. I mentioned at the start about how bad 2019 had been and how good I hoped 2020 was going to be. And little did I know what 2020 held in store for us, but we've survived. We've grown. We've learned lessons that will hold us in good stead for future calamities. And as we move into 2021, we go there with a growing realisation, I hope, that this world really does 
hold little of value for us. I hope and trust that you've recognised this year how fragile and fickle are the comforts and the treasures of this world and that you've returned your focus and your hope to the one who will sustain you, Jesus Christ. So we can go into the new year with the confidence that Jesus will continue to build his church and to make his name and his word known. Now what if 2021 turns out to be an even worse year than 2020? It's quite possible in some parts of the world where COVID continues to rage and the harshest lockdowns ever are being imposed. But it's possible it might happen here as well. What if 2021 turns out to be a disaster for us Christians? Let's face it, we have no idea what the year will bring. Now, I mentioned the Book of Lamentations earlier because our daughter Joe reminded me of it during the week. Let me read just a handful of verses from Lamentations so that we might get a small glimpse into the stark horror that they lived and died amongst. Speaking of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the, the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mother, mouth for the thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They've become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Why do you forget us forever, Lord? Why do you forsake us for so many days? We can scarcely imagine the horror of that scene. And yet right there in the middle of the book of Lamentations, right in the midst of the sickening de degradation and humiliation and suffering that Jeremiah was witnessing, he writes this, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. The simple fact that we have survived 2020 with our faith intact and with the desire to meet again with our brothers and sisters in Christ means that we have hope for the future. Great is his faithfulness. Once he's got hold of us, he will never let go. It doesn't matter what next year throws at us. The Lord will never abandon us. His mercies are new every morning. 
His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. As we go into 2021, as we reflect on 2020, would you call that to mind? But remember that therefore you have hope. I'd like to invite John to come up now and uh, lead us in communion. If you haven't uh, collected some of the, the juice and the bread, please would you get some of that now. Thanks, John. Thank you. Um, we're in our fourth and final uh, session through the four distinct views of the Lord's Supper. Thanks. Um, so we've seen Rome's transubstantiation, Luther's consubstantiation, we've seen Zwingli's memorial view, and now we're going to look at Calvin's script, uh, spiritual presence view. Um, and as I said each week, we want to be thinking about what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper and how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper as well. Um, I'll just quickly do a recap of Zwingli's memorial view. Um, unlike Rome and Luther, Zwingli denied that Christ was truly and physically present in the Lord's Supper. Instead, Zwingli argued that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, the meaning of his words are, this signifies my body and this signifies my blood. Uh, in this way, Zwingli didn't believe and teach that Christ's presence in the bread and wine, but simply that the Lord's Supper was a memorial held in light of Christ's death at the cross, but primarily a memorial due to the physical absence of Christ on earth since his ascension into heaven. So think of it like an Anzac Day memorial service. It remembers a historical event, but does nothing to help those attending. Now, I suspect it's probably the most common view in the sort of modern Christian churches today. We now move to Calvin's view, which is uh, probably termed the spiritual presence view. Um, I had mentioned that there are four distinct understandings of Lord's Supper about Christ's presence in it, about what we're doing when we take it, and the purpose or its effect. Um, Calvin's view is probably best summarized in this sentence that Christ is spiritually present with his people through the supper as they feed upon him in faith. So you may hear that and think, well, that doesn't sound too different to Rome or Luther's view, but Calvin's view is starkly different. In, in, in reference to Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, Calvin says, the presence of Christ in the supper, we must hold to be such as neither affixes him to the elements of bread, nor encloses him in bread, nor circumscribes him in any way. This would obviously detract from his celestial glory. And it must, moreover, be such as neither divests him of his just dimensions, nor dissevers him by differences of place, nor assigns to him a body of boundless dimensions, diffused through heaven and earth. All these things are clearly repugnant to his true human nature. So in other words, what Calvin's saying is that whatever our understanding of Christ's presence in the supper, we can't limit Christ in his deity as if he was enclosed in bread, but neither can we assign to his human nature attributes like omnipresence, which are contrary to true human nature. So Calvin isn't focusing his intention on, on the bread and the wine and how they become Christ, but rather how these elements are signs that testify uh, of the things signified. 
when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are truly feeding on Christ's flesh and blood, but not in a corporeal or physical feeding, but instead in a spiritual feeding. So we now turn to John 6, and you probably recognize a lot of this because we've been going through it for the past few weeks. Uh, the passage about true food and true drink. Uh, John 6, verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore, he said to him, "Why do we? Uh, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have indeed seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Just skipping forward through to 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, the one who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So as we saw a few weeks ago with Ian's sermon, uh, this passage in John 6 is a hard saying. Either Christ is speaking of full-blown, outright physical cannibalism, which is unlikely given, one, it's, it's outlawed in Scripture, and two, no one, not even his disciples, actually and physically ate his flesh and drank his blood. Or this eating and drinking flesh and blood is meant by Jesus to illustrate something other than physical eating. Now, passage does give us the answer. Verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. And then verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. So speaking of this analogy, Calvin believes that the physical symbols, the bread and the wine, are intended to bring our attention to the spiritual reality. That is, as bread and wine sustain our bodies physically, we are to look to the body and the blood of Christ that sustains us, nourishes us spiritually. So what's really taking place then? Now, I've got a, a bit of an excerpt from Calvin's Institutes. Um, I've slightly reworded it to make it a bit easier to understand in modern 
English, but um, Calvin says, the meaning is that the flesh and blood of Christ feed our souls just as the bread and wine maintain and support our physical life. For there would be no purpose in the sign if our souls didn't find their nourishment in Christ. But though it seems an incredible thing that the flesh of Christ, while at such a great distance from us physically, should be food to us, let us remember how far the secret virtue of the Holy Spirit surpasses our conceptions and how foolish it is to wish to measure its immensity by our feeble capacity. Therefore, what our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive, that the Holy Spirit truly unites things separated by space. That sacred communion of flesh and blood by which Christ transfuses his life into us, just as if it penetrated our bones and marrow, he testifies and seals in the supper, supper, and not by presenting us with a vain or empty sign, but by fulfilling what he promises with the power of the Holy Spirit. And truly, the thing there signified, his body and blood, he exhibits and offers to all who sit down at the spiritual, at this spiritual feast, although it, was, although it is beneficially received by believers only, who receive this great benefit with true faith and heartfelt gratitude. Therefore, if by the breaking of bread the Lord truly represents the partaking of his body, there ought to be no doubt whatsoever that he truly exhibits and performs it. The rule which pious, which the pious ought to not doubt whatsoever, that, uh, sorry, pious ought always to observe is, whenever they see the symbols instituted by the Lord, that's the bread and the wine, to think and feel surely persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is also present. For why does the Lord put the symbol of his body into your hands, but just to assure you that you truly partake of him. If this is true, then let us feel as much assured that the visible sign is given to us as a seal of the invisible gift, that is, his body itself given for us. So summarizing Calvin's view, we truly partake of Christ's body and blood for two main reasons. One, Christ says that we do, but because we don't literally eat of his body and blood, the second reason is the Holy Spirit ensures that in eating the supper physically, and only with our union in Christ by faith, we find nourishment for our souls eternally. So before we eat the bread and the wine, I invite Ian up to pray over the elements. Thanks, John. Father, to be able to gather together and share in the body and the blood of your son, Jesus, by this symbol of the bread and the wine. Holy Spirit, we don't know how it is that you do the work in us that builds us up as we take this. But what we do know, Lord, is that every time we take it, it affirms the truth of the sacrifice that was made on the cross on our behalf. Every time we take it, we're reminded of what you've done, Lord, and it cements a bit more firmly in our hearts the truth of our salvation, of your grace, your mercy, your goodness, the truth that your wrath has been turned away from us forever by that sacrifice on the cross, even if by no other means, Lord, of feeding us. You feed us by those things, Lord, those reminders and those uh, growing 
confidence and certainty of those things. Lord, even if that's all you do, that is enough for us. But Lord, I believe you do much more than that. As we eat and we drink together as a family, in faith and united to Christ, would you use this, Lord, to build our souls up and to make us ever more grateful with every passing day and with every passing communion, the work that you have done on our behalf. So let's eat together and drink as you're ready, the body and the blood of Christ represented by these. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that what we've just uh, partaken of, the bread and the wine here, is proof to us and evidence that your mercies never come to an end. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us by sending your son, Jesus, by coming willingly to take on the burden of our sin and shame and guilt on that cross to suffer and endure the punishment that we were we deserved that should have been ours so that you might reconcile us to the Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing that work within our hearts that turns us to cause, uh, causes us to turn to Christ in faith and receive salvation by your grace, Lord. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.